Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this time that we can study your word together. Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to speak through me. And Lord, may we hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think back to the old Seventh-day Adventist church logo. How many of you remember that? You know, there was, actually wasn't an official logo. It was just something that we always kind of did the same, but there's a lot of variations to it. But one of the things that was on that logo was the three trumpets. Remember that? And it was the three angels with the three trumpets. It really represented something that defines Seventh-day Adventism. And I would like to just read where that comes from. It's from Revelation 14. And this should be very, very familiar to you. Revelation 14, I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Uh, Hopefully you have your Bibles today. I, I will admit that today I'm going to go through a lot of different scripture. And I hope that you'll spend some time following along with me. Revelation 14, verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth, and the sea, and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. You know, when you study out the book of Revelation, as you read it, you'll see, especially as you get into the latter half, it's the story of kind of two cities. You have um, Babylon, and you have New Jerusalem. And as you look through this, you will see that many times the theme is Babylon is fallen. Babylon is fallen. We see it in Revelation 14. And then if you just turn the page, just a few more pages, turn with me, if you will, to Revelation 18. Because there's kind of a repeat going on of what I just read there in Revelation 14. Let's look, starting in verse 1. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice. I mean, this is a mighty cry. It's even louder than the first. Cried mightily with a loud, with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become the habitations of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Well, when I was looking at these texts, I was looking at what do they mean and what can we learn from them? And I realized, you know, we've seen Babylon fall once before in Scripture, haven't we? Back in the book of Daniel. And if you study scripture, you will see that in Daniel, you see the story of the fall of Babylon, and then we see it all talked about in Revelation. And there's all kinds of parallels between the ancient and the modern. In fact, as you study this, you can actually see a continuation between the ancient and the modern. 
Um, both Babylons were big into pagan worship. Um, both of them profaned the sacred. If you read it both in Revelation and in, in, in Daniel, they're both doing that. And if you study this very carefully, you'll see that Babylon um, violated the sanctuary. In ancient Babylon, they burned the temple. They took the vessels. They had parties with them and things like that. Um, and then you can see the prophecies and you can kind of see what's going on. And there's a denial today of the sanctuary. Babylon denies that there's a heavenly sanctuary. Babylon denies the ministry of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary today. In the past, in, in, in ancient Babylon, there was forced worship. And then modern Babylon comes along and it has forced worship. You know, you, you see this in, in many different ways, and this is, you know, I, I'm, I'm so pleased to hear that you guys are going to have a Daniel study. Um, I love Daniel. But you can see when you're looking and doing your Daniel study, you will see that through the ages, um, during the papal system, there's no religious freedom. It's all forced worship. And then we see in Revelation, the modern Babylon, the modern Babylon is going to be giving the mark of the beast, which is forced worship. And then you look at, at, uh, at Babylon, look at ancient Babylon. They thought they were so great that nothing could, could destroy them. You know, it was this unique city with a river going through it. They had unlimited water and they had these amazing walls and everything like that. And when their enemies would come around, they'd be all like, you know what, just you know, leave us alone. We're not going to worry about you. you know? And, you know, modern Babylon is not that different. We look here at Revelation 18, where I hope you're still at, um, verses 7 and 8, <clears throat> talking about Babylon. How much... She hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. Now listen to this. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. She thinks she's impregnable. But therefore shall her plagues come in one day. It's an instant destruction. One day, death and mourning and famine. And she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. You know, when Babylon falls in Revelation, what comes next? New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem and Jesus. And you know, when you go back and look at the old ancient Babylon, what comes next? Babylon falls, Cyrus takes over, and what does he do? He sends out a decree to rebuild the temple in New Jerusalem. So, with that, today I want to spend some time studying the ancient fall of Babylon. Now, as I study this, it, 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 it's a beautiful chapter we're going to look at, Daniel chapter 5. But <clears throat> um, there was something about that chapter as I was studying it that I went like, you know what, this story doesn't make any sense. And it wasn't what was in Daniel chapter 5. It's actually what's in Daniel chapter 6, which is what our scripture reading for today was. Because in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is set over the entire kingdom. 
Now think about that for a second, and we're going to look into this in more detail. In Daniel chapter 5, they're having this big party, and Daniel comes in, and we'll study what happens there, and then he's elevated, and he puts on the robe. You know, the, the king puts on the robe, makes him third in the kingdom, which is a really important fact. And then, next thing you know, Cyrus and his men come in, kill the king, kill everybody in there. Why on earth didn't they kill Daniel? I mean, the king's, the king's number, number two in the kingdom, right? The, the, the real number one is out in Saudi Arabia. But, but the king's number two in the kingdom, off with his head, right? But the number two guy in the room? Ah, we're going to elevate him to rule for us. Why on earth would that happen? He should have been the next guy killed, right? I mean, that would make sense, right? But you know what? Um, that's not what happened. And I wanted to answer that question. And as I studied this out, I learned a lot. And I believe there's some spiritual lessons for us. Well, if you want to understand Daniel and the story of Daniel, you actually have to go back. Well, I, I could go back, you know, from the beginning of time, but, but today time's a little bit limited. So you have to go back to Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king in Israel, and he lived about 100 years before Daniel. Now we have this story in three places. It's in 2 Kings chapter 20, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and Isaiah 38 to 39. And I wish I had time to go through it all, the story of Hezekiah, because he's, he's a very interesting king, and there's some very important spiritual lessons for us right there. But I'll just try to summarize them so we can we get an understanding. So first of all, Hezekiah is a good king. He really is in many, many different ways. But one day, Hezekiah gets sick. And when he gets sick, Isaiah comes to him. The prophet Isaiah comes to him. And he says, set thy house in order, for thou shalt surely die. Wow. That's harsh news. I mean, you're, you're a good king. And then this great prophet, the greatest prophet to, to walk the face of the earth that day, and, and one of the greatest prophets ever to walk the face of the earth, walks in and says, set your house in order, because you're going to die. Well, Hezekiah prayed. He was in distress and he prayed. He prayed, Lord, Lord, please, I'm a young man. Don't kill me now. And, and it's, it's a beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. And Isaiah, who's walking out of the city, the Lord comes to him and Isaiah turns on his heels and he walks right back into Hezekiah and he says, the Lord has heard your prayer. You shall not die. Well... I don't understand Hezekiah completely because if Isaiah came in and said that to me, I would have said, praise God, thank you, that's good enough. But no, Hezekiah had to say, you know what, I need a sign. I'd like to have a sign. And, and what he said, he said, can you turn back the sun 10 degrees? So he didn't ask for any small sign, he asked for a big sign. You know, if you look at the miracles of the Bible, and, and I, I am a believer in these, and I believe this happened. But, but this is one of the big deals. This is the one that gives the physicists and, and, and the astronomy people heartburn. Because when you think about what is involved in doing this, it's really tough. I mean, this is really, really tough. But God gives him that sign. And, you know, I think, as much as I think it's um, 
crazy for Hezekiah to have asked for a sign, especially one like this. Um, I think God intended for him to ask for this sign because God had a plan. You see, the neighbors of Israel, they're all sun worshipers. In fact, if you look around the world, all of pagan idolatry, almost all of it, globally, is sun worship. And so, you know, when the sun moves back, everybody pays attention. Everybody pays attention. And so, the word went out. Hezekiah has been healed. And who comes to Israel? The Babylonians. They come bearing gifts to Hezekiah because he's been healed. And they've seen the sun turn back. Now think about that. These guys are sun worshipers. They've seen the sun turn back. What kind of God does Hezekiah serve? But you know, Hezekiah blows it. And I kind of think, you know, this could have maybe even changed the chart of entire world history. But no, Hezekiah says, you know, I've been blessed. I'm wealthy. And what does he do? He shows off all of his wealth. Instead of testifying at witnessing of the true God, he shows him his gold. Well, Isaiah, he hears this, right? And Isaiah comes storming in as the Babylonians are leaving. And if you turn to Isaiah 39 with me. Isaiah 39, and we're going to read verses 3 to 8. Scripture says this, Then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men, and from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Then said he, What have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, All that is in mine house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, God, good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. He said, moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. So Hezekiah looks to his own days, and he's glad that it's going to be a while. Kind of lowers me, my estimation of Hezekiah a little bit. But you don't want Isaiah coming in and saying this, especially after all you've seen. I mean, this is the word of the Lord. And so this prophecy of the loss of everything in Israel, all the wealth of Israel, and of the princes, Hezekiah's children, they'll go to Babylon. Now, it's interesting. I invite you to go home and look at Isaiah because immediately, you know, chapter breaks are artificial things. Um, and if you look at Isaiah, 
it, he immediately launches into this prophecy. And it's a prophecy, a messianic prophecy of, of the Messiah. But, but it's also interwoven a little bit with the fall of Babylon and Cyrus. It just kind of weaves into all of that. It's very, very interesting. And when you look at these, um, well, think about this. All of this happens, and now Hezekiah has died and gone, and he has children, and they have children. Now, I think about this over the course of this next hundred years. People are going to be thinking about what happened during the reign of Hezekiah. You know, this sun moving back is no small thing. And the words of Isaiah, who came in and spoke of all this, I mean, he's no small prophet. And yet he gave this prophecy of the destruction of Israel and of the fact that the children of Hezekiah would serve as eunuchs in the court of Babylon. Now, if your children of Hezekiah, this isn't like the best news. This isn't a really good thing. But you know, those children of Hezekiah, at least some of them, had to have been very good followers of the true God. Because we can tell that they studied scripture. They studied Isaiah. They studied the prophecies. And that gave them great courage. We can see that in what happens in the story of Daniel. So moving on, 100 years from the time of Daniel, Daniel, I mean, excuse me, 100 years from the time of Hezekiah, um, Nebuchadnezzar comes. And he comes about the year 605, 606, and he surrounds um, Jerusalem. And Jerusalem agrees that, um, that they will be his vassal. Um, Babylon is becoming this great empire. And so he conquers Jerusalem. And he takes the princes of the court and he takes them back to Babylon. Now, this is a common thing in these ancient empires. Um, what you would do is you would go, you would conquer your enemy, and then you would try to use as much of the enemy's government as you could to govern them, and you'd take a tribute from them. Well, one of the ways that you wanted to keep them in line was, is you'd take their children. Because if you take the king's children, and you take them back to Babylon, you take them back to the seat of the empire, well, what are the chances they're going to want to rebel against you? Because what's going to happen to those kids, right? But then you, could, you can do it even one better because when you take him back to the empire, you don't take him in prison and say, look, you know what, if, uh, if, if you don't you know, follow the rules, we're going to kill him, right? No, no, no. You take him back and you put him at the king's table and you give him the education of, of your empire. You set them at a high standard because then the people that you've conquered aren't worried about their children but at the same time, you're turning their children into one of you. And so it kind of works out kind of for a long-term plan as to how to bring Jerusalem into full-on Babylon. Well, if you study out the history and all this stuff, it didn't work out quite the way Nebuchadnezzar wanted it to. And actually, Nebuchadnezzar had to come back two more times um, to, to destroy Jerusalem. 
And it was on the third time, he just absolutely had enough, and he, he burns the temple. But the first time, he takes Daniel captive. Now, if you see, this is a fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah. What did Daniel do? Well, the first thing we see him doing is when he gets to the king's, um, when he gets to the king's uh, palace, he's assigned to the eunuchs. Scripture is very polite in the way it deals with his subject, but if you're assigned to the eunuchs in the court or the eunuchs, you're a eunuch. And so Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled. But Daniel knows that there's a lot of other prophecies in Isaiah about the fall of Babylon, and he believes that God really is the God of the universe, and he purposes in his heart to follow the Lord. In fact, it's worth reading because it's just such a beautiful thing. I want you to, I want you to see this. After all that's happened to Daniel, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, says this, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. And so what he does is he says to the king, I'm not going to eat your food. Now, that's a big deal. That's a real big deal. And he says, you know what? Just give me fruits and vegetables I'm going to be on a vegan diet. That's what he says. Now, I think it's real easy to kind of talk about, well, it wasn't kosher, you know. That's why you had to do it or whatever. And there's definitely a huge truth to that. But there's a, there's a bigger lesson and one that I think applies to us today. And that is this. This diet that he went on, this wasn't just some way of like saying, Lord, I, I follow you, I trust you, although he was. I mean, that's definitely purposed in his heart to, to follow the Lord. But it gave him more. It gave him something special. You know, it's only now that we've done the studies and we can kind of try to figure this out. When you eat a rich diet, when you eat the, the meats of this world, that, that, man, the stuff they're feeding us today, it messes with your brain. And specifically, the part of your brain that it messes with is your frontal lobe. And the frontal lobe is the part of the brain that separates you from an animal. And if you want to see what people are like without their frontal lobes, it's actually pretty easy. Get them drunk. And when they're good and drunk, they start to act like animals. But Daniel, he said no. I'm going to stay away from the king's table. I'm not drinking any of his wine. I'm not going to eat any of his meat. I'm going to eat a vegan diet. And the Lord blessed him. And it helped his brain. It helped his brain. It helped his moral fortitude. And you know, you get to, towards the end of that story, and if you look at Daniel um, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, and the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his three friends. Therefore stood they before the king. 
And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in his realm. So Daniel, all of a sudden, is ten times better. How does that happen? Well, guess what? God blessed him, and it's a fulfillment of prophecy. And this is a prophecy that I can guarantee you Daniel knew. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalms 119. Psalms 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. And you know, this is the chapter, if you look at it, hopefully you have a Bible that's, that's separated like this, like mine, in the first, uh, first few verses it says Aleph. The next few say Beth. The next one say Gamel. The next one says He, then Vow, then Zane. I don't know if you have that in your scriptures. But what I'm just reciting right there, the Aleph <coughs> and the Beth and the Gamel and the He, these are the letters of the alphabet. And the way Psalms 119 was used, you know, we do A is for apple, B is for boy, C is for cat, and all that stuff, you know, those little children's books. Well, the Jews used this from the time of David to teach their children the alphabet. And so every child in Israel knows this, every last one of them. And, and look, Psalms 119, um, I want to read verses 19 and 20. No, that's, boy, I hate having the wrong thing. Excuse me. 97 and 100. It's, it's a long, long chapter here. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all day. You know, Daniel's obeying the law when he, when he says, I'm not going to eat from the king's table. Thou, through thy commandments, has made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. Man, is Daniel not the fulfillment of this prophecy? And Daniel can see right there, it's demonstrated to Daniel that what he learned as a child is true. So, so Daniel, in chapter 1, is going through this test. And he goes through the test, and he succeeds. And he gets to see that the word of the Lord is something that can be relied upon. And then you go to Daniel chapter 2, where you have the vision of the metal man. And there we see that Daniel's really cool under pressure. And here we start to see Daniel's prayer life. And we see that, that, that he, he, he succeeds in that again. Then Daniel chapter 3. Daniel's not present in Daniel chapter 3. It's very interesting that he's not there. Um, He's, he's number two in the kingdom, and he must be out working on the, uh, the king's business. But we see his three friends. Why were they so able to do this? Now, we can give kind of the cheap answer, and, and it's true. I mean, I'm not saying that this is a bad answer, and that is they trust in God. But I think... It's good to know a little more depth as to why they trusted in God. Now, we can see these different 
tests that they've gone through. They were with Daniel as they went through the diet test and everything like that. They were with Daniel giving him support when he interpreted the dream. But they're relying upon the word of God. And turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 43. Uh, I want to show you this text here. Isaiah 43 in verse 2. When thou passeth through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. What does that verse mean? And why would these boys know that it applies to them? Well, this is talking actually about Israel being taken captive. And when they're taken captive, they're taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. And when they go through Bab to Babylon, they have to cross the big rivers. You have Euphrates and Tigris are all along in there, and they cross these. And that, the way Scripture is written, and if you study what Scripture really means, that's what's being referred to here. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. So when they're going through the waters, they're relying upon this. And you know those ordeals that they have to go through? They've already seen this fulfilled in Daniel chapter 1, <laughs> they got to be wondering um, back in Daniel chapter 1 when they're thinking about, wow, Isaiah was talking about us when we walked through the waters, right? They're like, what's going to happen with fire? <laughs> and here they are, and they get to see this right here. It says, when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. In other words, their clothes aren't even going to get burned, right? And so you see, because of this, they're able to answer this in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, they say this. Verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer you thee in this matter. I love the way they say it. We don't care about what's going to happen. We're not careful when we answer you. If it be so, and others thrown into the fiery furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But check this out. They're not presumptuous. Because the next thing they say is, but if it not be, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. What an amazing statement of faith. And, and God honored that. And nothing burned on them. They go into the fiery furnace. And by the way, where is this fiery furnace? If you look to see where this actually is, this is in the oil fields. If you want to know what they were burning in that fiery furnace, they're burning oil. Oil comes out of the ground there without anybody pumping it, at least it used to. So anyway, if you look at Daniel chapter 6, skipping ahead, Daniel in the lion's den, this is Daniel's version of being in the fiery furnace. So Daniel goes through this too. It's just a little later in our, in our story. And we're only going to get to Daniel chapter 5 today. But anyway, as we move through Daniel, Daniel chapter 4 is an interesting one. This is Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going mad. And here we see more about Daniel. He's a good friend. He actually takes care of Nebuchadnezzar. 
Um, but this brings up an interesting point. You know, history is relatively silent on, on this um, piece of Nebuchadnezzar's um, rule. And people have made all kinds of weird statements about it. And, and some people who choose to disbelieve the Bible, they like to disbelieve this part. But um, we have something from history about Nebuchadnezzar. Um, find it here. Whoops. Here we go. Um, through all of this, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar develop a special relationship. You can see a couple of times in Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar is kind of a, a converted man. And, and it's an amazing thing. And I think ultimately Nebuchadnezzar was converted. And I think we'll see him in the kingdom. And he's the guy that I really want to talk to because he seems like just an amazing character. I mean, he goes out and he takes what he wants and then he just says what he thinks. But then when things don't work out right because, you know, he went against God, he immediately says, praise the Lord of the universe, the God of Daniel. So this guy, I mean, he, he, he's just very surface. He, he, it's really cool. And, and I, I want to meet him. But... Um, you know, Daniel, um, Daniel, as we've seen, this is the guy who obeys God. If there's one thing Daniel does, is he obeys God. And Jeremiah is living in the time of Daniel, and he's writing letters to the people in, in the captivity, which is going to include Daniel. I would expect Daniel to be the first guy to get the letter, probably. And if you look at Jeremiah chapter 50, There's an interesting instruction here. It says, The word that the Lord spake against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet, declare ye among the nations and publish and set up a standard. In other words, a flag. Fly a flag on this. Publish and conceal not. Say, Babylon is taken, Bel is confounded, Merodach is broken in pieces. These are the Babylonian idols. Her idols are confounded, her images are broken in pieces. And then it goes on. But, but look at what it's saying here. It says, declare ye, tell everybody. Now, if Daniel is the guy who obeys God, he's being told to tell him. Now, if Daniel's the one telling him, what's he going to be telling him? Well, he's going to be telling him the stuff that, that, that Jeremiah says, but he's probably also going to be telling him stuff that Isaiah says. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 44, you get to see some interesting things. I see my time is leaving me. I hate that. Isaiah chapter 44. Oh, I hope I have. The, yes, I do. Verses 27 and 28. that saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. Now we're kind of jumping in. I'm going to be jumping in in the middle of some of this stuff. So he's saying that some rivers are going to be dried up. Now I can tell you right now, the river that they're talking about is the river that goes through Babylon. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasures. 
even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. I want to tell you something about Cyrus. Cyrus is this Persian, but they refer to him as the Persian mule. And you're like, why? Why do the historians call this guy Persian mule? Well, Cyrus is the son of a Persian who married a Mede. And so he's half and half. He's half Persian and he's half Mede. Now, when he's born, there's some trouble going on in the kingdom. And there's a king there who I can't remember exactly what the details are, but for whatever reason, he didn't want Cyrus around because he was the rightful heir to the, to the throne. And so when Cyrus is born, this king says, kill him. And he goes to the, he goes to the master of his court, the court chamberlain or whatever, and says, kill him. Take the baby and get rid of him. So he takes the baby, but he doesn't want to kill him. And he's been around a while. He's seen different things, and he just isn't going to do it. And so he goes off into the villages, and he looks around until he finds somebody who's got a recently died baby. And it turns out it's a shepherd couple. And he says, here, take Cyrus, and I'm going to take your baby. And he takes the dead baby, and he goes back to the king and says, I killed him. Well, time goes by, and Cyrus is raised out into the village. And eventually the time comes, and they figure out who he is and everything like that, and he becomes king. But what does Cyrus think of himself as? A shepherd. And Cyrus actually refers to himself as the good shepherd. And here's scripture written hundreds of years, well, 100 years or so before. Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying, Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thou foundation shall be laid. Um, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to, to subdue nations before him. And I will, and listen to this carefully, loose the loins of kings. Remember that, loose the loins of kings. We're going to talk about that a couple of times. To open before him the two-leaved gates, gates that shall not be shut. And I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the barn, the the bars of iron. You know, Herodotus tells us that Babylon had giant gates of brass. You know, those gates were open when Cyrus comes in. And so, you know, um, just to show how much detail the Bible has, if you go to Isaiah 13, Daniel would have known this. Isaiah 13 and verse 17 talking about the fall of Babylon. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. So Isaiah is talking about Cyrus, who's Persian, the Medes. He's got all the details here, right? Now, with that in mind, remember what was Daniel supposed to do? According to Jeremiah, he's supposed to publish it. Put a flag up. Tell the whole world what's going to happen, right? Well, we have this evidence from history that Daniel did this. And this is the last words of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, this was recorded by a historian na named Magasthenes, and it comes down to us through Eusebius. Now, Magasthenes says that Nebuchadnezzar was braver than Hercules and subdued many nations. And after the words, the Chaldeans said he went up to his palace and being, being possessed by some god or other, uttered the following speech. 
O men of Babylon, I, Nebuchadnezzar, here foretell to you the coming calamity, which neither Belus, my ancestor, nor Queen Beltis are able to persuade the fates to avert. There will come a Persian mule, aided by the alliance of our own deities, and will bring you into slavery. And the joint author of this will be a Mede, in whom the Assyrians glory. Oh, would that before he gave up my citizens, some Charybdis or sea might swallow him up utterly out of sight, or that turning in other directions, he might be carried across the desert, where there are neither cities nor foot of men, but where wild beasts have pasture and birds their haunts, that he might wander alone among rocks and ravines, and that before he took such thoughts into his mind, I myself had found a better end. Now, if those are the words of Nebuchadnezzar, and that's what history tells us, Daniel taught him the prophecies. Now, if Daniel teaches him the prophecies, what does that mean? And could this be a key to understanding how Daniel survived the night of the fall of Babylon? I want to show you a prophecy in Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah 21. Isaiah 21, and we're going to start in verse 1. Yes, there it is. You know, I need to set some background on this. This is where I was going next, but i got to set the background. And so keep your finger there, okay? And with your finger there, turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel does an amazing thing in his book. He always tells you where he was and when he had it, whatever was going on, except for just a couple of the chapters. And this is important here in Daniel chapter 8. It says this in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, and after that which appeared unto me at the first. So we got a date here, right? Okay, and if you do the math and figure out the history, we're talking about 550 B.C. or 10 years before Babylon falls, okay? And I saw in the vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw a vision, and I was by the river Ulai. Okay, so we got a place. Where is he? He's in Shushan, which is in Elam. Now, I got a map. Let's see if we can get that put up here. And I want to show you where Elam is. Okay, when you look at that, I apologize for not being a very good map, but, but you can see the right side of that, it's mountainous, and that's where the Persians all come from. You can see that it lists the Persians there. I think the map's a little inaccurate. I think a lot of Persians north of there, but we'll, we'll go with it. And then you see that place there, it says Susa. That's Shushan, that's the same place. And then Babylon's kind of off there in the, in the center. Hopefully you can see that, it's kind of a small map. But I want to have you get this in your, in your head. This is the Persian Gulf, and, and Elam is this desert. All of that stuff that looks like mountains, that's all just terrible desert. And it's all there next to the Persian Gulf. Now, that's where Daniel was when he has the vision 10 years before the fall of Babylon. Now, when he's there, this is a capital city. Who's else going to be there? The king of Shushan. He's going to be there. 
And if Daniel's out telling the thing, you know, posting the standard, what's he going to want to tell the king of Elam? Wouldn't he want to tell him the prophecies about Elam? So turn with me to Daniel chapter 21. Let's see what Isaiah, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 21. Let's see what Isaiah says about Elam. The burden of the desert of the sea, as a whirlwind in the south passed through, so it cometh from the desert from a terrible land. A grievous vision is declared unto me. The treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, and the spoiler spoileth. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O media. All the sighing thereof have I made to cease. Therefore my loins, filled with pain, pangs have taken hold of me, as the pains of a woman that travaileth. I was bowed down at the hearing of it. I was dismayed at the seeing of it. My heart panted. Fearfulness affrighted me. The night of my pleasure, the night of my pleasure, hath he turned into fear unto me. Prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat, drink, arise ye princes, and anoint the shield. Well, when they say anoint the shield, that means anoint a new king. For thus saith the Lord, said unto me, Go, set a watchman, let him declare what he seeth. What does he see? And he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of asses, and a chariot of camels. And he hearkened diligently and much heed. And he cried, A lion, my Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set to my ward whole nights. And behold, there cometh a chariot. Remember chariots, this is important. A chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. Where have we seen Babylon's fallen? That's, in, that's Revelation here, okay? So this is really important stuff, okay? Oh, my threshing. We'll stop right there, okay? So what did we see? I'm just going to tick off what we saw because I think you, you might miss it, okay? From the south, the desert of the sea. If you look at that map, which you can see it's coming up from the south. That's all desert, right? You see Elam and Media coming together, right? And, and, and Cyrus is half Median, and that's why they call it the Medes and the Persians, Loins filled with, with, with pain and dismayed. Night of pleasure. They're going to anoint a new king. Chariots and camels, we saw. And then Babylon is fallen. Now, see here, we've got to see one more verse real quick. Isaiah 49 in verse 38. Now listen to this one really carefully. I will set my throne in Elam and will destroy from thence the king and princess, saith the Lord. This is more talking about... Um, this is about Elam. Now, now think about this for a second. Who was Cyrus? How is he... How is he um, described? He's described as my anointed. Now, ready for some history. What happened? Did all these prophecies, are they nothing? Did they not get fulfilled? Well, let me tell you what happened. It's really interesting. You've got to read this guy. His name is Xenophon. He's a Greek historian. And he tells the story about what happened. Cyrus decides that he is going to conquer the Babylonian Empire. And the way he decides to do it is he comes south out of Persia, 
and comes down to the Persian Sea, and then he goes north. He's going to go up through the rivers into Babylon. And so one of the first places he gets to is Elam. And so, and so he's coming up, and he gets to Shushan, and when he gets to Shushan, the king isn't there, and his armies are all gone. So he gets to go right into Shushan, and they just immediately surrender. I mean, this is crazy. They can't do anything to defend themselves. And he takes everybody captive, takes the queen captive, and he says to the queen, he, he takes the queen and he gives, him to one of, gives her to one of his generals. And he says to the general, don't touch her. She's a queen. Keep your hands off her. And so he's starting to make plans about going further on up and, and, and going to conquer Babylon. Well, this general tries to touch the queen. And the queen runs to Cyrus and explains what happened. Well, Cyrus is pretty angry about that. So what he does is he cuts the nose and the ears off of the general. And he says to the general, you're going to this city over there. It's one that he wants to conquer. He says, I'm not going to conquer it right now. But you go there. You tell me you've been completely disgraced. Become their leader and then surrender to me when I come back. That's what he says to the general. Well, the queen's listening to this and she's going like, wow. This is a respectable guy. He's actually protecting my honor. And so she writes a letter to her husband. His name is King Abroditus, king of Shushan, and says, look, Cyrus is an okay guy, and maybe you should meet him when you get here. Well, this king is off fighting this other battle. He's got sieging this other city, and he comes back as fast as he can, and, and, and he comes and he meets Cyrus. And they talk, and they, 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 they become friends. And when he comes back, though, he comes back with these chariots. Cyrus has never seen chariots like this before. And he's like, my word, these things are awesome. And so Cyrus actually calls a complete timeout to the conquering of Babylon to build himself chariots. And so he builds all of these chariots for this whole year. He takes a timeout for a year, builds his chariots, and now he starts going up to Babylon. So when he gets there... Think about this. Think about being Daniel. What are you seeing? You're just seeing a fulfillment of prophecy. You know, what happens? Daniel chapter 5. In the interest of time, I believe that this is a, a, a well-known story, so I'm just going to summarize it instead of reading it. I'd love to be able to just read it and go through it, but, but there's some things that, that I want to point out. It's a night. It's a party. This is the night of pleasure. And Dan's going like, oh my word. That's what the prophecy said. The night of pleasure, right? And then the king, he's taking out the, the temple stuff. You know he is. Because this is at night. And this is before electric lights. So how do you light the place? With candles, right? Okay, if there's a detail you don't need to put in, it's about candles, right? But if you look at Daniel chapter 5, in verse 5, In the same hour came forth a finger of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the paluster of the wall of the king's palace. Okay, if you're going to mention a candlestick, that's because you took the candlestick from the temple. That's the only candlestick that's worth talking about because everything is lit by candles. And he writes this, but check this out in verse 6. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against the other. I can see this king, and his knees are doing this. 
right? And isn't that exactly what's in the prophecy? And Daniel knows about all of this, and he's been looking out over the walls, and he sees the chariots of Elam, and he sees the camels with them, because this thing, remember, if you go back and look at, go back to Isaiah, you've got to read this on your own, because this is new to you, okay? You see the, the camels, Cyrus brought camels, he was known for bringing his camels too, right? And they're all, this is all happening, right? And then you've got this handwriting on the wall. Now, if there's ever a time Daniel doesn't even need to look up to see the handwriting on the wall, it's right now. You know, lots of times we look at this and go like, oh, Daniel had some special knowledge given to him as to what this stuff means. Yeah, sure, he did. It's called the Word of God. It's called the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Daniel could look up at this and say, well, duh, I told you so. Right? Now, what do you think is going on outside the city that night? Remember, Daniel's been in Shushan 10 years ago, and he told the king. And that king's become best friends with Cyrus. And I can see him sitting around the fire. And King Abroditus is saying to Cyrus, you know, you're never going to believe this. 10 years ago, there was this guy named Daniel, and he came, and he told me, he said, look, you're going to come with the king of Persia, with all your chariots, and you're going to sack Babylon. And I told Daniel, I said, Daniel, there's no way I'm going to do that. Because if he said, sure, yeah, I'm going to do it, Daniel's got to cut his head off because Daniel's serving Nebuchadnezzar, right? And that would be, you know, traitor. So he says, no, no, Daniel, I'm never going to do that. He says, but here I am today with you, Cyrus, and we're going to do it. And by the way, you're mentioned in Scripture. He can say all that to Cyrus, right? Now, imagine that the night before. And then the battle comes, the gates are open, the river's dry, all the prophecies are being fulfilled. Just boom, 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 rapid ones, right? They walk in, they walk into the party, they're killing people as fast as they can. And King Aberditus says, Cyrus, stop! See that guy right there? That's Daniel. That's the guy. That's the one I'm telling you about. This is the one that said, you're coming. This is the one that said all of this was going to happen. It's got to have worked out something like that. It has to be. It absolutely has to be. And then, what does Cyrus do? He takes over. He sets Daniel up, second in the kingdom. He sends a decree, rebuild the new Jerusalem. Now look, we're living in the time of the fall of Babylon. And you know, there are special prophecies for us. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servant the prophets. 
So we see a time. If you look at Revelation, it's a bunch of different sevens. And every time you hit to the seventh one, you know you're in the end times, okay? So we're here in the days of the seventh angel when the mystery of God should be finished. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto, again, spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. I have no time to tell you what the little book is other than to say it's the book of Daniel. And you need to study that out so you know that. Because this is about us. <clears throat> and I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. Eat it up, read it, understand it. And it shall make thy belly bitter, but, in thy, but shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Now look, this is a whole nother study, and you're going to get it hopefully soon in Daniel or somewhere. This is the story of the Advent movement. This is the story of us understanding the book of Daniel, but getting it a little bit wrong on the 2300 days. And it was sweet because we believed Christ was coming back, but bitter because he didn't. God knew that. He predicted it. That was no accident. That was nobody screwing up. That was God's plan. But what did we do during that time? We preached the three angels' messages. We preached Babylon is fallen is fallen. We preached the message of Revelation 14. But read the next verse here in Revelation 10. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And that is Revelation 18. And what is it? It's the same message as Revelation 14. And what is that message? Fallen, fallen is Babylon. How did Daniel survive? He purposed in his heart, and he knew the word of God. If you look at Daniel, he embodies all of the same messages, all of the same truth of Seventh-day Adventists. He's got the health message. He's got an active prayer life. Bible study has to be absolutely key. There's so many places in Daniel where you can see where he was studying the Bible. He wouldn't have done what he did. He knew about the prophecies of the fall of Babylon, the apocalyptic. That's his end time prophecies, right? And he's an evangelist. He didn't just know all this stuff. He's an evangelist. If he hadn't told these kings about it, he'd have been nobody. Look, and then, in a parallel to us, he set up to rule again. If you look in 1 Corinthians, I love this. So many times we, 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 we miss this kind of stuff. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Do you not know that... The saints shall judge the world. And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that ye shall judge angels? Look, what happens after Babylon this second time falls, right? We're saved and we go home with Christ, but where are we set up? 
We're set up second in the kingdom. We're set up second in the kingdom to judge angels. We're just like Daniel. And so, look, I want to make an appeal to you. My appeal to you is to be like Daniel. We have to prophesy again. We have to be good Adventists. We have to dare to be a Daniel. We are here. We have a beautiful health message. We have the greatest understanding of Scripture. We understand the prophecies. But we've got to go out. And we've got to evangelize. We have to prophesy again. Man, we live in a world that focuses on all the wrong things. Ugh, we spend so much time talking about social justice and Trump and, I mean, you name it. But yet we have the beautiful message. And I just pray for each one of you. Go back. Study. There's so much that you can squeeze out of Scripture. And it is helpful to know a little bit of history, too, so that you know that the prophecies were actually fulfilled. But all we have to do is follow what Scripture says. And it's been done before. The Adventists have done it before. It doesn't say prophesy something new. It says prophesy again. And so I make a call to you to turn back to our roots. Turn back to Scripture and let's get this thing done. Because... I want to be like Daniel, and I'm looking for that day when we go home with Jesus Amen. and we can judge angels. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your Sabbath day, this time that we can come together and study your scriptures. Lord, I, I am in awe in how you've designed history and scripture and all of these things. Lord, thank you so much for these prophecies. I pray that each one of us will study this and know these prophecies and that we can gain the same courage and strength of character that Daniel and his three friends had. And Lord, help us not to hide this stuff. Help us to share it. Lord, we look forward to your coming. May you find us good and faithful servants when you return. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.